Hi, welcome to the HIPSA podcast. My name is Peyton Watt, and I'm the president of the Health Policy Student Association, otherwise known as HIPSA. And I am Mike Mahalski, the vice president of HIPSA. We are both students at the University of Michigan. HIPSA is an interdisciplinary organization focused on practical policy engagement, professional development, and advocacy. We hope this podcast is informative and engaging for listeners from all walks of life, and we thank you for tuning in. Please feel free to leave us a comment on our website at hipsa-um.org or email us at hipsa-execboard at umich.edu. Thanks. Welcome back, everyone, to HIPSA's The Health Policy Checkup. My name is Christina Del Greco, and I am a PhD student in the Human Genetics Department at the University of Michigan, as well as a member of the HIPSA Public Relations Committee. Today's topic is genetic data policy. We are generating massive amounts of genetic data, whether it's from medical test results, scientific studies, building biobanks of data, or direct-to-consumer genetic testing like Ancestry.com and 23andMe. Because this genetic data contains a lot of personal health and identifying information, it's incredibly important to understand the policies that exist to regulate that data. I am super excited to introduce our speakers today, Dr. Katie Hassan and Anna Fang from the Center for Genetics and Society. Dr. Hassan has a PhD in sociology from the University of California, Berkeley, and previously taught as an associate professor of sociology and gender studies at the University of Southern California. She's currently the program director on genetic justice at the Center for Genetics and Society, and her work centers around the social and political issues surrounding both genetics and reproductive technologies. Additionally, we also have Anna, a third-year undergraduate at UC Berkeley, studying molecular and cell biology and a current intern at the Center for Genetics and Society. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. Great. So we're going to start off with questions for Katie. So to open this up, um, tell me a little bit about how you became interested in genetics policy. Sure. Um, well, as you mentioned, my academic background is in sociology, um, as well as gender studies. And um, one of the areas that I was focused on there was science and technology studies. So how do we think about um, science as being really part of society, right, influenced by um, the, the social context that it happens in institutions? Um, and how do um, you know, the inequalities that we have in society show up in scientific research, how do they influence the technologies that get developed and, and how they're used and, and how can those technologies then um, also influence, you know, social relations and power inequalities in society. Um, so in my own research, I was actually focused on studying menstruation and birth control, but uh, in my teaching, I took a broader look at, um, at these issues. And that was really where I started to dig more into the issues of genetics and genetics policy. So it was really important to me to give students um, a critical lens to think about the historical and social context in which um, genetic research and data um, are, you know, being collected, being conducted, where that's happening, and how it could impact um, social and health inequities in our society. So that they really had a way to think about that when they're learning and reading about genetics and health in their classes or uh, when they encounter stories in the news about developments in human genetics. Um, 
And then in 2017, I joined the Center for Genetics and Society, and that has allowed me to really focus on the area of human genetics and um, reproductive technologies uh, in a way that actually centers the um, social justice and human rights uh, perspectives on how we use, how we develop and use genetic technologies, um, what the social implications of them might be, how do we make sure that they are uh, governed in democratic ways and in ways that are beneficial to all and that avoid um, harmful and, and divisive effects. That's super cool. So tell me a little bit more also about, I guess, the state of genetics policy as a field overall um, and sort of what you see kind of as the most pressing issues right now. Um, and if you feel like those are being addressed or really are kind of backburnered right now, sort of what does the genetics policy field look like? Yeah, I, I would say the genetics policy field is actually really wide ranging. Um, you know, genetic research um, and different ways that genetic data are collected and used are touching so many areas of our life at this point um, that genetics policy can really encompass a wide range of things. Um, some of the things that you've already mentioned, issues around privacy related to um, genetic research and in particular to direct-to-consumer genetic testing, I think are uh, major areas of genetic policy right now where you know, we really need to see some action in these areas and thinking about how we're going to protect the privacy of people's genetic data. I think, you know, a lot of uh, consumers who may, you know, send their spit kit off to 23andMe or Ancestry, they want to learn a little bit potentially about where their ancestors came from or maybe something about their, uh, their health risks, um, aren't necessarily thinking about you know, who that data might eventually be shared with or what purposes it might be put to or um, whether there are protections in place um, around those issues, right? How much control do consumers have over it? And, you know, I think the way that it stands right now in terms of um, the privacy of that data and what can be done with it um, by, the, by the companies that collect it is basically um, determined by the companies themselves through their own privacy policies. Um, so, you know, the, the bigger companies like 23andMe and Ancestry um, do have privacy policies that they share with their consumers who uh, are asked to read through multiple pages of documents and really think about what it means. It's, it's not clear um, how closely people may be reading it or, you know, whether they treat it like the dozens of other privacy policies and agreement that we skim through and, and click on every single day. <laughs> so, and then, you know, the one sort of clause that's always present in these companies' privacy policies is uh, that the company has the right to uh, change their privacy policy in the future if they want to, right? So in a way you're really putting your trust in this company that, you know, they will be held to their word or that they will, keep their same ideas about privacy on into the future, including if they shut down and sell off their assets or if they get purchased by another company or um, if they decide to you know, merge with another company or something like that. Um, so that's, that's one really gen big general area of, uh, 
of policy around genetic data privacy. But I think there's another um, realm of, of specific uses uh, that needs a lot more thought and attention, which is um, the use of privately collected DNA data by law enforcement. Um, so since the, the attention around the, the Golden State Killer case in California, which was one of the first cases where a suspect was found using um, this technique of uh, forensic genetic genealogy. So sort of comparing um, the DNA sample collected from a crime scene to this open access um, database where people had shared their 23andMe results, their ancestry results, um, as a way to potentially find long lost relatives or to, to fill out their family tree in various ways. It was meant to be used openly among people who were working on their family genealogy and not necessarily to be used or not, it was not intended to be used by law enforcement. Um, but since that case, there has been a big uptick in, um, in law enforcement agencies wanting to use genetic databases um, in this way, which raises a lot of questions about um, you know, the, the consent of the people who upload their information to those databases, as well as um, you know, DNA information doesn't just give personal information about you individually, but your entire family, right? Everyone that you're related to, um, you know, distant cousins that you don't know anything about and potentially, you know, future generations, right? Children that you haven't had yet, um, you know, information is, is also being shared about them. So, and we've seen movement not only towards more law enforcement agencies wanting to get access to this information, but actually um, the website database that was initially used um, that was kind of open access and, and meant to be shared among, you know, genealogy community was actually uh, purchased by a company that specifically sells um, genetic services to law enforcement companies, right? So, um, and these are not things that people anticipate, you know, or think about when they are sharing their genetic data in that way. We really just don't know at any one point in time, you know, what future uses genetic data might be put to, but that genetic data is, is not something that, um, that you can, you know, you can get it, maybe you could get a new credit card or potentially change your social security number, but, you know, your DNA is, is uh, once it's out there, it's, it's, it's out there. Um, and then just briefly, I would say, you know, another area of uh, genetics policy that maybe seem, sounds a bit far afield from the genetic privacy issue, but um, is connected to is something that, um, that our organization, Center for Genetics and Society, focuses on quite a bit, um, is the issue of human genome editing. And, you know, what applications of human genome editing will be allowed um, and how that will be regulated around the world. Um, and particularly, there's the question of, you know, separating genome editing of somatic cells for treatment of diseases of, of existing patients um, from applications that are using genome editing to alter 
uh, sperm, eggs, early embryos in a way that's meant to alter the DNA and the traits of future generations. So this, these forms of germline or heritable genome editing that, uh, that are affecting you know, future generations, future children and future generations down the line. And, and this is a global policy issue um, that urgently needs attention and, and something that we are focusing a lot of attention on right now. Yeah, these are all really big issues in genetics that like we have to kind of address. Um, for you personally, um, what does your sort of research or policy area focus the most on, would you say? Yeah, um, so as the, uh, the program director on genetic justice at, at CGS, I'm primarily responsible for our work on human germline editing and, and genome editing more broadly. Um, one of the recent research projects that we um, completed and published at the end of 2020 was actually a survey of uh, you know, policies, laws, regulations, guidelines around the world on human germline and heritable genome editing. Um, we looked at 103 countries um, and looked for laws that would be um, applicable on the face of them, you know, to either human germline editing done in the lab, right? Altering sperm, eggs, or embryos, but only for laboratory research. So we called that, we made a distinction there between that as germline editing and then heritable genome editing, which is then taking those altered cells um, and putting them in a woman's uterus to begin a pregnancy and lead to uh, potentially a, a genetically modified child. Um, and so we, we looked at the policies that might apply um, in each of these countries to those two sort of research uh, practices. And what we found, particularly in the area of heritable um, genome editing, is that there was a very pretty broad degree of consensus among countries in terms of um, having prohibitions against using heritable genome editing. We found 75 countries um, that had laws that would prohibit this practice, and five of them had you know, potential um, exceptions for various reasons, but we were, we found that that is, um, that, that degree of, of broad agreement among national policies is not reflected in the policy conversations that are happening around heritable genome editing right now. You, you'll often hear, you know, a few countries or maybe even many countries prohibit, but the, the conversation around um, what kinds of policies we'll have around heritable genome editing uh, tends to start as if there's a blank slate, right? And that we're going to be uh, devising a new policy from scratch. But if you look, you know, this actually hadn't been done to this um, broad extent. You know, when you look at all of these countries, you see that actually there are laws in most of the countries that we looked at that were applicable um, to heritable genome editing and a, a fairly um, clear amount of agreement there, which suggests that maybe global consensus around these issues is more possible um, than, than some tend to think. That's really interesting because I feel like when it comes to hot topics like this, there's, there's not a lot of times where that many countries are in agreement on anything. So that's really cool. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then I guess the question that I'm particularly interested in, so as I, as I mentioned before, I'm a PhD student in uh, human genetics. And so I am, I'm a bench scientist. And so I'm really curious about where you see the most opportunity for collaboration between scientists and policymakers in this field. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a great question. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some programs that are available for, you know, especially students in the sciences to, to learn more about science policy and get involved in that way. Um, and there are, you know, some of the professional organizations um, do sort of have discussions and, and position statements and, and guidelines that they develop around these fields, around these kinds of issues. Um, but, but I would encourage, you know, science and policymakers to talk about this issue, but also to broaden the conversation, right? For something like um, heritable genome editing, where it's, where it's potentially affecting everyone, right, in the world. Um, you know, there's, there's a way that we, I mean, for this issue that's affecting everyone in society to some extent, we really do need um, a broad and inclusive global conversation. So we need scientists involved in there, but not just scientists, right? We also need to hear from, hear perspectives from many more groups of people. And particularly when we're thinking about the societal implications of um, some of this research and its application, uh, you know, we need to be looking at which groups in society are going to be affected by it. Um, how can we think about the, uh, the historical context and the social context in which um, this research is being developed? Uh, and what can we learn from that in terms of, you know, what direction um, certain applications of this technology might take? So, you know, I would encourage scientists who want to be involved in these uh, policy discussions to also think about, you know, how can you develop not just your expertise uh, within the lab, but to think about really what kinds of broader social questions might you want to know about to sort of fit your, your research within that social context. Got it. And then a related question, um, as this is a, this is a student run podcast, um, what advice do you have for students looking to get involved in this policy field? Yeah, I think, you know, advice to students is to, to look broadly, I think, look around um, for, you know, I think it's great that there's, um, that you are involved with this, the health policy organization at your university that can help you um, connect to these policy issues. Um, you could also look around um, in the university to, uh, look for things like science and technology studies classes, or I know uh, Michigan has a great science, technology, and public policy program. Um, and then also to, you know, connect with your communities, right? Think about what are the, uh, the political issues that you're concerned about um, and to, to connect your, your research to it in that way as well. Awesome. Thank you. Um, we are now going to shift over. Uh, I have a couple of questions for Anna. 
Um, so Anna, to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your experience uh, working with Katie and the Center for Genetics and Society? So what have you been working on? What have you learned? Have you had any particularly cool experiences during this time? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been working with the Center for Genetics and Society for um, almost three months now. And I've really just been learning nonstop since I uh, virtually stepped into the stepped foot into the office. Um, I was warned by the previous intern that the learning curve was going to be steep, um, and indeed it is. And I'm still learning. Um, and especially as someone who's majoring in a hard science, I'm majoring in biology, um, and who has mostly been exposed to the scientific methods and concrete facts um, in my major classes. I was actually first exposed to science policy here at CGS. Um, and so primarily I've been reading a lot and broadening my uh, perspectives about the science that I've kind of taken for granted during my academic career. And um, I've learned a lot about the dark side of genetics from age old issues such as eugenics to newer issues of privacy like Katie was talking about earlier and the ways that these problems are carried by modern technologies. Um, and it's it been interesting to kind of contrast and reconcile these topics in society with the minute biological details that I'm learning in my current genetics class. As for the kind of work I do, I help Katie and our small tight-knit team um, with building a newsletter to send to the subscribers of our website, and this happens bi-weekly. And I also help with keeping our many sources of information updated so that people can learn as much as I'm learning. Awesome, that's really cool. I get that newsletter actually. It's always oh, fun great. to read. Great. <laughs> um, so then Anna, and it's okay if you don't know the answer yet, but uh, do you know sort of what your long-term career goals are? I feel like you're kind of in a similar position as me as I am in hard science, but also kind of interested in the policy side of things. So I don't know where your head's at career-wise right now. <laughs> Uh, my favorite formidable but necessary question. <laughs> um, I think the answer to this um, is constantly evolving and being narrowed down, at least for me, especially as I've tried new things and experienced um, through new activities in my undergraduate career. Um, just to share a short story, I came into college pre-set on the pre-med path, but a year ago I attended a speaker event by a club that I'm a part of. And the speaker spoke about his experience with public health and starting his own nonprofit organization, which much like CGS was committed to providing accurate information to and advocating for vulnerable communities. And something that night really resonated with me and made me realize that I could be improving human health and knowledge without having to practice medicine. And maybe I could be doing that in a more efficient and effective manner. Uh, that's a long way to say <laughs> I am now interested in getting a master's in public health to continue the sort of work that I'm currently doing with Katie, which is to advocate for underrepresented groups um, via outreach, education, and research. And perhaps if I do decide I want to go through with medical school, my experiences in public health and advocacy will help me practice as a more conscientious and empathetic physician. That's awesome. So then I will finish for questions with, for you with the same question I ended for with Katie, uh, which is what advice do you have for students that are also looking to get involved in the genetics policy field? 
Um, this is difficult for me because I am still third year and undergraduate, uh, but from what I've seen <laughs> and from my experience, for a couple of concrete like ways into the field, um, I'd start with what's most accessible to students, uh, which are student-run clubs or other speaker events, like the one I'd mentioned earlier. Even if you're unsure what field you want to go into, or like whether you want to practice, start a nonprofit, or inform public policies, or rather, especially if you're unsure, it never hurts to get another perspective and meet new people in the health and greater science fields, also to echo what Katie was saying earlier. And I was actually able to join the Center for Genetics and Society as an intern through a student organization that matches undergrad students with public health and social justice nonprofits in the SFB area. So I would say it definitely doesn't hurt to start small, even if it seems small. <laughs> um, and if you're interested in writing and research, um, I think doing your own research, just reading up on articles and PubMed or just any other um, well-known source, writing an op-ed or blog post is a great way to look into issues you're interested in. Um, and not only is this an easy way to learn more in depth about the topic, you can also try submitting your work. Like and Center for Genetics and Society publishes blog posts from um, external authors. And I'm sure there are local publications um, in Michigan as well that would be open to accepting those submissions. And to end with a general tip, like I said earlier, I've been on a very steep learning curve since the beginning of my time um, with Katie and the team. I had no idea that genetics policy and technology was so far reaching and that gene editing affected so many groups of people differently, but all of us at the same time. And I think a lot of it would have been really difficult to digest if not for the extracurriculum I'd been taking in college that are outside of my major. So as a biology major, these classes for me included Asian American studies, sociology and environmental health. Of course, I know the minimum course load can already be overwhelming for many of us. I totally get it, but I really can't emphasize enough the importance of being well-informed and able to view any given piece of information with various lenses. And especially if you wanna go forward and create policies that will affect large populations of people, many, whom, many of whom will not be exactly like you or your colleagues. Um, it's really important to stay unbiased, but empathetic. And even outside of policymaking, I just think we could all benefit greatly from more empathy and awareness. Definitely agree with that point. Um, so great. Uh, to wrap up for a fun question for both of you, uh, if you could recommend a book right now, whether or not it's policy related, what would you recommend? Um, my book is definitely not policy, not policy related, but um, I recently finished reading a book called Severance by Ling Ma, um, and it was recommended to me um, after the surge of Asian American hate crimes um, in the last month. And it's about um, an office worker in New York City um, and kind of following her journey before and after an epidemic that is scarily similar to the COVID um, pandemic, although the novel was written in 2018. Um, <laughs> so it's an interesting foreshadowing and it made me think a lot about um, the daily routine and whether I should be a part of that cycle <laughs> as, a, as, a future, as a future entry into the workforce. <laughs> That's great.
Sounds like a really interesting one. Um, my recommendation would be on the topic of human genome editing. I think that uh, there are a lot, there's been a real uh, kind of bumper crop of books about CRISPR and gene editing lately, but I think if you're interested in a, an in-depth look at the ethics and the kind of policy questions around heritable human genome editing, I would recommend Altered Inheritance, CRISPR and the Ethics of Human Genome Editing, which is by uh, bioethicist Francoise Bayless. Um, she gives a really great introduction to, you know, the science that you need to know for sort of people without the scientific background, um, but also gives a very clear look at the ethical questions around it and um, asks some really uh, challenging questions on the policy side about how do we ask and answer a question like, what kind of world do we want to live in? How do we think about whether this technology um, will take us towards that world or not? And you know, what could we do to try to find something like global consensus on an issue like this, not just at you know, the level of national governments, but really thinking about um, you know, how do you get input from people all around the globe and, and what does it mean to try to come to consensus? Awesome. I'm always looking for book recommendations, so I will add both of these to my list. All right. So thank you both so much for joining me uh, on this podcast episode to kind of dig into the world of genetics policy. I really appreciate that you both took the time out of your day uh, to talk to me about this. So thank you again. And I hope you as well as our listeners have a great day. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you.